1: Two brothers who started a fresh pasta company. A comedian who looks to the family dinner table and stories around food and culture for inspiration. A beekeeper who wants to make backyards in Florida more welcoming to bees.
0: He's on this crusade to build what he calls bee hotels, which sounds a little terrifying. But it's basically a little safe shelter for these solitary loner bees, I guess we would call them.
1: These are just some of the people who share their stories on the new season of The Zest. WUSF's podcast celebrating the intersection of food and Florida. Today on Florida Matters, I'll talk with host Delia Cologne about season seven of the podcast. In this season, she's delving into the science of keeping produce fresh for longer, learning more about the food traditions that enrich the culture of Florida, meeting innovative culinary entrepreneurs, and more. Well, Delia, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. In this new season of The Zest, you've got some really wide-ranging episodes. You're going big. You're interviewing food entrepreneurs who've started business uh, amid the chaos of the COVID pandemic. You've got a beekeeping evangelist who wants to put bee hotels on people's roofs. And you're finding humor in the cultural ingredients that make up a family dinner. And that's just a a small slice of the episodes on offer here. So let's start with some practical food tips, though. One of the people you interviewed for this season is T. Lou. He's a UF horticulture professor. He's got all kinds of useful advice on getting the most out of your produce specifically. Uh, What were some of the takeaways from this conversation?
0: Wow. So here in Florida in particular, I just feel like our produce doesn't last. I'm originally from Ohio, and I don't know, being from New Zealand, what your experience is. But the humidity combined with just the natural quality of some produce, it just doesn't last very long. So one of his suggestions for bananas— was to wrap them in plastic wrap, the oh, way you wow. see at the grocery store. That's you know how the- That's
1: counterintuitive, I wouldn't have thought of that.
0: I know, not the entire banana, just the, what, what do you call the- The stem? The, the stem where it comes together. I don't okay. know, someone's probably yeah, yeah. screaming at their uh, radio <laughs> right now because yeah. they know the technical term for it.
1: But the kind of tip of the bunch.
0: Correct. He also, this is, this is tricky because if you listen to the zest over time, you may hear advice that sounds counterintuitive. So mm-hmm. we've spoken to Wendy Wesley, who's a St. Petersburg dietitian and nutritionist, and she advocates for not using the produce drawer. She calls it the drawer of death yeah. because you put your Brussels sprouts and your apples in there and you forget about them and they go bad and you mm. end up eating whatever's at eye level. Yeah. But those drawers are actually designed to create the optimal environment for produce to help it last longer. So mm. Professor T. Liu would say, Do use the drawer of death. Make it a drawer of life. (laughs) Don't wash your fruits and veggies until you are ready to use them, which, again, maybe from a dietitian standpoint, they would say keep everything washed and cut up and accessible. Mm -hmm. Make the healthy choice the easy choice. So it really depends on sort of where your priorities fall. Um, He also pointed out that local and organic produce has a shorter shelf life than a lot of the supermarket produce.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. So yeah, lots of great tips in there. And you got a lot of input from um, staff here at WSF, right? Like, kind of tell me what I need to know about keeping my veggies and fruit fresh. And really I sweet.
0: love having guests like this, experts, when I can just post on social media. And yes, our colleagues are happy. I mean, they're journalists. So of course, they're happy to supply their questions. And people like Delina and Stephanie and, and so many of the colleagues here had questions like what should go on the counter versus what should go in the fridge. Mm -hmm. And T. Lou points out that you can't necessarily look at what the grocery store is doing because, for example, my grocery store keeps grapes just like out in the middle of the store. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't do that at home. Right. (laughs) But they've got some tricks up their sleeves that we don't have at home. So it really, the answer for everything is it depends, which I know nobody wants to hear, but that's just the fact.
1: So let's um, talk about a business which started up in the pandemic and starting a business is a bold step for anyone, but to get a food business up and running when you've got chaos happening and everything's unknown really takes it to the next level. But that's what brothers Greg and Nick Byron did. Here's Greg talking about the inspiration for their business, which is called Pasta Packs.
0: Nick was laid off, you know, everything was shut down. We were kind of quarantining uh, me, him, my wife, and at the time, my newborn, other newborn, uh, were quarantining at the house. And, you know, he's cooking all kinds of like amazing dishes, lobster and then ravioli, and just kind of, you know, going crazy in a creative space. And then reality set in of like, oh man, like, how are we going to pay the bills? You know what I mean? Like, it was kind of cool to have
1: a week off and then not so cool. So, tell me about what makes Nick and Greg's business unique and what makes their story so compelling.
0: Oh, I love these two. And as an aside, Greg is actually a former WUSF intern from a million years ago, so oh, it's wow. so cool to see him and his younger brother Nick um, just thriving with this business that as you said started during the pandemic. So Nick was a chef, a sous chef at Okenola, which is the restaurant of James Beard award-winning chef Ann Kearney here at Armature Works in Tampa. He was laid off. They started having these elaborate. Remember the early days of the pandemic were all nostalgic nostalgic form. We were all just cooking up a storm and mm-hmm. the wine was flowing. The food was flowing. the yeah, music... People were
1: making sourdough, right? That was a thing.
0: Oh, totally. Sourdough. We got to the point where we made dog biscuits. That's really... how. <laughs> because we really, we need to make something that we won't eat. <laughs> we're eating too much. So we started gifting all the neighbors' pets with dog biscuits but they had the food and music and wine flowing the only thing that wasn't flowing was the money Mm -hmm. so they started creating these at-home pasta kits fresh pasta there's nothing better than that but it's a ton of work your kitchen is covered in flour but they would make these deliveries first to family and friends and then just all over town all over tampa bay so people could have that fine dining restaurant quality experience in their homes. Mm-hmm. So they were people who, I don't know, maybe like the Pelotons of the world. They were, they were the lucky ones who actually thrived during the pandemic. And they now have a brick and mortar location in South Tampa. So they no longer deliver at home, but you can go and pick up fresh pasta. They also do catered in-home dinners. They were telling me about a three-course dinner they did for someone and private pasta making parties. And what mm-hmm. I especially love as an African-American myself is these are two African-American brothers. So I, you know, joked they're brothers and they're also brothers who are making Italian food. Mm -hmm. And the element of surprise when people walk into their shop and see how um, skilled Nick is. I mean, he's a graduate of Johnson and Wales. And then Greg brings the business side and the photography for the follow them on Instagram, do yourself a favor, it'll make you hungry. So that's Greg's handiwork. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've really thrived. They were even featured in a Wall Street Journal article about businesses that started during the pandemic.
1: Well, wow, so they're really disrupting some I mean, because is there's a certain kind of traditional element to it, right? But they, they, they've kind of come in and really disrupted it in, the, in every sense of the word.
0: I think in a sense, but they do have a lot of those traditional flavors and backgrounds and sauces. They've had people come in and say, you know, I'm a Sicilian grandmother and this tastes just like mine and things like that. And and really, there's no higher compliment than that.
1: Right. Let's turn now to Natasha Samraney. She's a comedian. She talks about her parents' heritage and the meals that they would share as a family. And what I thought was fascinating about your conversation were her observations about moving to Central Florida as a teenager and trying to fit into her new environment. Let's take a listen.
0: We would always bring, like, leftovers to school, and Dahlia, I don't know what your experience is, but I was one of those kids, you know, like, especially moving to America. I just wanted to be, like, I wanted to have, like, a Lunchable or a pot pie. Yep. <laughs> but that never happened. We'd be bringing, like, Tupperwares full of, like, tabouli <laughs> to school and I'd be trying to trade to bully for a PBJ and like kids would just be like, what is wrong with you? Uh,
1: This is a great anecdote because I feel there's there's something kind of universal about it. I mean, maybe not that particular experience, but just trying to fit in and sort of feeling unsure about, you know, whether people are going to make fun of you because of your background and your family and then sort of looking back on it and kind of appreciating, you know, what you grew up with as an adult. What, tell me what kind of resonated for you about this conversation.
0: That is such a common story. When I talk to children of immigrants, her background is is pretty unique. She's Ecuadorian, Italian, and Lebanese. And so mm-hmm. at her family dinner, there would be Ecuadorian uh, sort of like a potato pancake called yapingacho. There might be um, tortellini and then... Um, tabbouleh, as she said, all kind of mixing it up together at these long, loud Samarini family dinners with Natasha and her three sisters. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's such a common experience. I think about past seasons of The Zest when we interviewed the sisters who own um, two Korean girls in Miami, and they had a similar experience. They would grow up, they didn't want their friends to come over because their house smelled funny and their parents Mm -hmm. talked funny and all these things. And now they are thriving on those old family recipes. Yeah, And so for Natasha, she doesn't necessarily cook up food for a living, but she cooks up these fantastic stories. So she's a comedian and a storyteller, and she did spend a lot of her adolescence in Tampa. She recently moved to Rhode Island to work for a theater company, but she frequently returns to Tampa Bay. And actually what interested me in her was she hosted a storytelling event called Dish mm-hmm. at a bar in St. Petersburg where – People told stories with food themes in the spirit of, say, the moth radio hour. And so initially I just wanted to use that audio as an episode of The Zest, Mm -hmm. but it didn't quite work out that way. But I was so interested in talking to Natasha and how she really owns her story and her, you know, all the quirky aspects of her family and being a military brat. She's lived all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But she keeps coming back to Tampa for the home-cooked food.
1: Mhm. That's a, that's a great name for a for a show or a, or an episode right the dish too, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. And and then she kind of like uses that in her comedy. Like a lot of co- comedians kind of turn the lens inwards, right? They, they sort of examine themselves and their families part of their comedy. Which kind of you, you and Natasha kind of talk a little bit about how she kind of reflects on her upbringing and and uses that as comic fodder. Just talk a little bit about that part of the conversation if you could.
0: I just love her storytelling. I just want to be the fifth Sam Rainey sister. I just want to pull up a chair, get a big bowl of tortellini, and just hang out with this family. She mentioned that her family is Mormon, Mm -hmm. and uh, her grandmother had invited these two young men who were Mormon missionaries over for dinner. And she just tells a hilarious story about her grandmother trying to set up these Mormon guys with... Natasha and her sisters. She just has these funny stories. And she really makes me reflect on my own family and hopefully does the same for other listeners, because we all have these stories when you Mm -hmm. really stop and think. She also encourages everyone to keep a journal. And if your kids are theatrical or funny, um, encourage them to keep a journal because that's a goldmine.
1: She kind of turns the the microphone around at the end and starts talking like interviewing you as well which I mean that probably doesn't happen that often in your conversations does it?
0: It really doesn't like this is weird right now you and me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm used to asking the questions. No but it was fun. I mentioned to her that I was an exchange student in Ecuador during college and she wanted to hear all about my experience, my favorite Ecuadorian foods, my favorite comedians and I just think she's such a great example of what a good storyteller is, mm-hmm. because she's a good talker, but she's also a wonderful listener.
1: You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with Delia Colon about the new season of The Zest, WUSF's podcast celebrating the intersection of food and Florida. After the break, what's a bee hotel, and why are bees such an important part of the food chain? That's when we return. Welcome back to Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. Let's get back to our conversation with Delia Cologne, host of The Zest, WUSF's podcast celebrating the intersection of food and Florida. Another episode I, I would like to talk to you about is um, your conversation with beekeeper Derek Lewis. He's a guy who's been keeping bees for decades and he's a dedicated ambassador for these creatures. Uh, he explains it saying they have a really important role in the food system, and that's beyond providing us with honey. Let's take a listen. Well, we all love honey, okay? But in reality, bees' far greater function in in society is their pollination. They are sophisticated little creatures. They won't go any further than they have to. So friends of mine have often said to me, when they didn't have their own bees in their yard, They had to hand-pollinate some of their plants. So Derek Lewis, he's a treasure trove of information, right? He spent a lifetime with bees. Uh, What are some of the things that stood out for you about this conversation? What did you learn? What surprised you?
0: Derek Lewis is such a character. He started emailing me a few months ago. I got to have him on to talk about these bees. And I honestly hesitated at first because a few years ago we did a whole series on honeybees and I thought no. what else could anyone possibly have to say about honeybees? But as you mentioned in your intro, he really is an evangelist for bees. He brings the the art and the science of bees and beekeeping to life. So he, as you may be able to tell from his accent, he grew up in South Africa and when he was a boy, his grandfather who was a beekeeper developed an allergy to bees. So Derek's family suddenly found his grandfather's six beehives on their property, in their Mm -hmm. garden, as they call it, in South Africa. And so Derek is a third-generation beekeeper, and he moved to St. Petersburg a few years ago and originally got in trouble for harvesting honey in his backyard. It wasn't allowed back then, but he was instrumental in convincing the city of St. Petersburg to be a bee-friendly city, which now, you know— Everybody's got honeybees in their backyard. It's no mm-hmm. big deal. But that's in large part to Derek Lewis and his work in the Pinellas Beekeepers Association. Mm-hmm. So he's really a mentor for people who are interested in beekeeping. And he's mentored more than 100 beekeepers.
1: Wow. You're, you're from, you live in St. Petersburg?
0: I have lived in St. Petersburg. I live in Riverview now.
1: Riverview, okay. But, I mean, is, does, does that seem like a good fit for this kind of bee culture? Because it, it does seem a little bit offbeat, I think, the idea of having bee hives in your backyard. Maybe it kind of goes along with like backyard chickens, but is it a is it a good fit for the city of St. Petersburg?
0: I absolutely think so. I mean, St. Petersburg is independent restaurants and art galleries and musicians, and it has so much character and culture and texture that like honeybees are a perfect fit because every jar of local honey is different. It has its own character mm-hmm. and texture based on the plants that the bees pollinated. So yeah. if you had to represent St. Petersburg as a food, maybe it would be a jar of honey. Mm-hmm.
1: He also had some other really, I think, interesting nuggets. Like there's only one honeybee or one species of honeybee in the United States, but there are all these other bees that are, what, what does he call them, solitary bees? They just hang out on their own, but they're also really useful for the you know pollinating the plants.
0: Yeah, I didn't know that. And so that's why he's on this crusade to build what he calls bee hotels, which sounds a little terrifying, Mm -hmm. but it's basically a little safe shelter for these solitary loner bees, I guess we would call them, Um, because one out of every three to four mouthfuls of our food, if I got that right, depends on pollination. So even if you can't stand honey, if you're allergic to honey, you rely on the foods that these bees pollinate, mm-hmm. whether it's almonds or um, citrus fruit or even certain grasses. So even if you're eating a burger, mm-hmm. that cow needed to eat that grass, which was pollinated by that bee. It really is. It's like what you learn in grade school. It's it's the chain. It's the food chain.
1: Some of our uh, colleagues here at WSF have done some reporting. Um, Kerry Sheridan, I think, talked about the impact of the hurricane on beehives and the kind of bee industry here in the Tampa Bay area. But uh, he, he mentions, Derek Lewis mentions the fact that they're really crucial for, like, almond pollination, right? They just ship all these hives across the country at a certain time of year for a few weeks, and that's a big business, which, I mean, you don't really think about that, but it's, it is pretty fascinating.
0: It really is, and he also had suggestions for what we can do to make our neck of the woods more bee-friendly. If you don't want a bee hotel, if you're not sold on that idea there are little things you can do, like planting more wildflowers. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you could talk to your community leaders about planting more wildflowers in some of these green spaces. A green lawn is beautiful, but in terms of nature, it's not very useful. What would Mm -hmm. be more useful is um, like a a lawn that I visited a few months ago. It was right before Christmas. I wanted to get a canepa tree for my husband. It's a a, um, Puerto Rican fruit. Mm-hmm. And I found this lady through a Facebook group in Seminole Heights who, her yard is edible. Her entire yard is edible. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which is allowed in Seminole Heights. It looks like a jungle. She's got bees and chickens, too. It's mm-hmm. amazing. But a, a yard like that is more useful than just these manicured lawns. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: You haven't been convinced to get a beehive yourself after talking with Not Derek? Not quite just
0: yet. Yeah, I don't know if my family would go for that. But maybe I'll uh, sprinkle some more wildflower seeds around the yeah. garden. Yeah.
1: There's so much in this this season of The Zest. Do you have a favorite episode?
0: Oh, it's like a favorite child. <laughs> okay. Um, season premiere. Our season premiere was a conversation with Chef Albert Youngman, who is the culinary director for Disney's Epcot theme park. Mm-hmm. And he's fun. I always like talking to people in the food world who have just a cool job. Yeah. There are so many cool jobs. So he's one. He talks about planning the four food festivals that Epcot puts on every year. Yeah, they're a huge deal, right? Oh, totally. People go, you, you eat your way around the world at Epcot, mm-hmm. right? With, with They've got like a dozen, uh, quote unquote, countries. You can go to Mexico and Norway and Canada and all these places. Um, I also spoke with Dr. Martha Beretta from Blanchard House mm-hmm. in the Fort Myers area. And she talked about food ways of the enslaved. So well. some of the conversations, it's it's not all just Mickey ice cream bars here at the Zest. Sometimes mm. we have to talk about some uncomfortable things like the fact that slavery is a part of uh, Florida's history. But she mm. talked about what enslaved people ate in the Middle Passage on the way from Africa to the Americas. She even talked about midwives and how they helped— supplement the diets of pregnant women because their rations were not enough, Mm -hmm. you know, to have a healthy baby. And then um, even enslaved chefs in the White House, you know. And so it's just fascinating. Food is like a window into all sorts of fun things. Um, Mm -hmm. On a lighter note, I also talked to Julia Malucci, from Monin, yes. so Monin, I hadn't heard of Monin. Had you heard of it?
1: No, no, not until I listened to, um, got a sneak preview of the this episode.
0: Okay, so Monin, some people probably know, is a flavoring company. It's a mm-hmm. global company and their US headquarters is in Clearwater. And she's sort of the, she called herself an Oompa Loompa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the,
1: the Willy Wonker of, uh, of flavoring.
0: Yes, it? and I remember she told me, I play with sugar all day long. So mm-hmm. she comes up like a mad scientist. She comes up with all these different flavorings, and it's a combination of her bartending experience and then research what should be the flavor of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, what do people want to put in their coffee or their cocktails this year? Oh, yeah. So at the beginning of every season, I think, there's nothing else to talk about. Yeah. No one else wants to talk to me. We've we've covered everything. Mm-hmm. But there's so much more. It's like the gift that keeps on giving the topic that will never run dry.
1: Yeah. I mean Tampa Bay itself has a pretty interesting food scene, right? So do you do you get a lot of people pitching you? I mean you must get people saying, Look, I want to be on this the, the podcast or giving you ideas. Like how does that work?
0: We do get a lot of people pitching. I have a Google spreadsheet. It's not very interesting. <laughs> Everybody probably has Google spreadsheets for everything, but mm-hmm. I have a Google spreadsheet broken down by winter, spring, summer, fall, because you know, if it's it's about strawberries, that needs to be in the winter. If it's mm-hmm. about making ice cream, probably save that for the summer. So I kind of break it down that way. And then some topics are evergreen. We get a lot of pitches that aren't gonna work mm-hmm. for the zest. Each episode is around 20 to 30 minutes. So I need a topic that's interesting for that long and it can't just be a sales pitch for your business. Mm-hmm. That's not going to do it. There are other places where you can do that. Yeah. Um. But I think there's a story within everyone. Right before I was here, I was in St. Petersburg at Gran Hacienda Restaurant interviewing, I think she's the general manager. Her name is Claudia Johnson. Mm-hmm. And it's a Mexican restaurant. It's got uh, four or five locations in Tampa Bay. But she's originally from Mexico and she's studied food and baking all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so for her, I wanna know, how do you marry authentic Mexican cuisine with what will sell to a customer in St. Petersburg? And so she had lots of good stories to tell about that and about the origins of Cinco de Mayo and Mm -hmm. all kinds of good stuff. But yeah, we love pitches. I also love swinging for the fences. You know, the guy from Epcot, he wasn't like blowing up my phone or anything. I just asked, can I talk to you? And he said, yes. And last season I got, Chef Tracy Hartman, who's the executive performance chef for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Oh, wow. That was another one. I don't follow football at all. Mm -hmm. But I knew that would be interesting. I want to know how those people eat. I want to know what Tom Brady eats and all these other guys. And that was another one I asked. And she said, yes, timing is also key. I I recently taught a podcasting workshop. And this was like one of the tips is timing is key. Mm -hmm. So don't talk to the Bucs chef during the playoffs. That's not going to work. Talk to her in July when nobody else is trying to talk to the Bucs. Um, so that's how I got in there.
1: One thing kind of caught my ear in listening to some of these episodes. You you said that you you kind of a, a bit of a homebody. You like to have a home cooked meal over going out. Do you like what's what's um what's in your fridge and what do you what do you like to cook?
0: If I'm thinking about like my Instacart grocery list and what's on it, like on repeat, it's kale because my daughter loves kale chips, and that's oh, really? how I can get vegetables wow. into her body. It's a lot of strawberries. I have kids, so you know. Yep. It's a lot of like strawberries, apples, bananas, oranges. Kids always go for that stuff. I'm a vegetarian and at home I try to cook mostly vegan because you could be a junk food vegetarian and just have like mac and cheese every day. Mm-hmm. But I try not to do that. So I'll do a lot of bowls. Mm-hmm. I'll do like a grain based like rice or something. And then I really like roasted chickpeas. Oh, yeah. So I do those a lot. I'll just roast them in the toaster oven with like olive oil, salt, pepper, paprika, mm-hmm. garlic. Um, and every once in a while, I will splurge and make my mom's mac and cheese recipe.
1: Yeah. Obviously, not all of your episodes are about like a restaurant or necessarily with a chef, Like right? Sometimes you're kind of getting into the more esoteric stuff and going deeper into culture and things like that. But do you... Tend to kind of come away from your conversations hungry and like thinking about stuff that you want to deploy in your own kitchen or try out yourself?
0: I do. That happens all the time. Um, So, pasta packs, those guys made me really hungry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What I should do is drive down to their South Tampa location and just pick something up. But it does make me want to experiment a little bit, not even just with the food, but also with like how I shop for food. Like, I've talked to a lot of chefs. I talked to, Chef Justin Timonary, who's the chef of the Fresh From Florida campaign. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he so he's kind of like Florida's ambassador chef mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. And he talked about the importance of shopping like a chef. Mm-hmm. A chef doesn't make the grocery list and then go to the market and say, I'm buying everything on this list. The chef goes to the market and sees what's fresh and in season Hmm. and plans the meal around that. So I've been trying to do more of that, more seasonal, because it's gonna taste better. It's probably more local, so it's better for your local economy. Um, Wendy Wesley has taught me a lot about storing fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. You know, Put uh, a wet paper towel in a container and close it, and so it makes it almost like a little rainforest for your broccoli or whatever, and keeps it fresh longer. So I do hear their voices in my head, and I've also noticed patterns over time. I mean, we've done over a hundred episodes as to how these people approach uh, what they do.
1: Yeah. So, what's next for the zest? I mean, do you do you sort of like try and plan out a couple of seasons ahead, or you just sort of let a season go and then and then reassess?
0: Oh, I wish we were planning a couple seasons. <laughs> ahead. Maybe if we had <laughs> a little a little more personnel, we could do that. Each season is 20 episodes long. I'm emailing everyone I can possibly think of and I'm throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks and sometimes it surprises me who says yes we've had Mm -hmm. a lot of James Beard award winners who they don't need any more publicity but they just love to talk about what they do and I think especially the podcast format Mm -hmm. allows them to talk about it in a longer form that they don't get in other places so hopefully it's fun for them too
1: and just remind our listeners where they can find the episodes for season seven and all the other other seasons as well
0: I'm so glad you asked. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or at thezestpodcast.com. And we're on social media at The Zest
1: Well, Delia Colon, uh, host of The Zest, WSF Public Media's podcast, celebrating the intersection between food and communities in the Sunshine State. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. I'm hungry now. Maybe we should go out to eat.
1: And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org, or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Donora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.